This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In support of the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every regular episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the surprisingly very ways that progressive, well-meaning, do-gooding philanthropists have consistently held back the social movements they're attempting to help and have strangled attempts to implement truly egalitarian policies designed to help everyone. Clips today come from Tiny Spark, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Jacobin Radio, and Next Economy Now. For me, it was just kind of the story about the celebratory story, right, about a foundation and a black civil rights organization that basically combined forces and were able to change the very framework of Jim Crow as it relates to education and therefore kind of change the trajectory of civil rights in this country. Um, and I like that story. And I think a lot of us like that story. The problem is that narrative isn't accurate, according to Megan Ming Francis. She's associate professor of political science at the University of Washington and author of Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State. More recently, Francis wrote a paper for the Law and Society Review entitled The Price of Civil Rights, Black Lives, White Funding, and Movement Capture. In it, she looks closely at the relationship between the NAACP and its main funder, the Garland Fund, and the long-held narrative about the collaborative relationship between the two. I basically uncovered a different narrative. And and the narrative that I think I disrupt is that kind of the the traditional narrative about the education desegregation campaign being a collaborative effort between the NAACP and the Garland Fund. It was a bit more fraught than what we have thought it to be. Francis discovered this by spending lots of time poring over the extensive archives of both the NAACP and the Garland Fund. As she did that and considered the celebratory narrative that had been drafted by past scholars about the relationship between the NAACP and the Garland Fund, a question kept arising in Francis's mind. Why do two sets of researchers look at the same things and interpret them differently? Because as Francis looked at the NAACP's archive, she saw a different narrative emerging about the civil rights group's relationship with its patron. And, she says, a more complicated narrative began to emerge as she took a different approach with the scholarship. In my research, what I decided to do was to very much privilege and take seriously the words and the protestations of the Black NAACP leaders. Um, and I think what some researchers had done in the past was to privilege the narrative coming out of the Garland Fund about the relationship with the NAACP. And so what I did is I centered Black voices in the construction of civil rights and the construction of this narrative. And I think that once we, once we do that, we can see, especially from the leaders at the time, James Weldon Johnson, Walter White, W.B. Du Bois, that they actually were not fully comfortable about the interaction with the Garland Fund. And the Garland Fund really focused on this issue of education at a time in which the NAACP was not that focused on the issue of education. Right. 
and I want to I want to get to that in just right. a moment. But I want to I want to follow on what you're saying now, which is that I did find really interesting that you when you've talked about um, kind of your research process, you indicated that in in research and, and writing this paper, perhaps your book prior to that, you became attuned to the way that power and race shapes mm-hmm. what can actually be written down and yes. noted. Yeah. about these interactions and the organizations involved. And I'm very interested in that. And I, you know, as Mm -hmm. you talk about centering the voices of the leadership of the NAACP itself, rather than the funders, like, Mm -hmm. talk to me a little bit more about what you surfaced there, what you discovered, because when I was reading that, I was wondering, like, were there things that weren't said? Or, like, you know, what were you... Were there silences and omissions? Like, I'm just kind of right. curious, like, what yeah. was there? And also, what wasn't there that intrigued you, if anything? No, that's great. I'm, I'm also, let me, just, I'm very glad that you um, noticed that. It's uh, it's one of my probably favorite moments or parts of that article is actually kind of thinking through um, the power in archival research, very much influenced by post-colonial and feminist scholars, and thinking about how do we read silence, silences in the archive, um, and how do we also account for archives that are not actually there. So a lot of this, a lot of the work that has actually informed my thinking about the archive are accounts and scholars who focus on the period of slavery in the United States. And how do we read through, how do we read for the experience of the enslaved when there's not actually kind of documents, right, that are actually mm. there? Mm. Um, for this, though, I, I didn't encounter that problem in the sense that the NAACP has the most well-kept archives of any civil rights organization in the United States and the largest collection at the Library of Congress in D.C. That's the benefit of focusing on the NAACP. However, one of the things that I was trying to be attuned to was exactly what you mentioned in this question, which is how to be attuned to what they wrote down and what they said and what they couldn't say because of a Jim Crow racial order that existed at a particular point in time. Because the time period of this grant formation is about uh, about 1927 to about 1931, right? So this is kind of heyday of Jim Crow. They are at the same time that they are trying to kind of negotiate the contours of this grant. There are people in the South and in the North, African Americans being lynched, right? So that is kind of the backdrop um, of what we are working on. Also at this time, while today I think some people consider the NAACP to be a well-to-do, even, dare I say, a bourgeois organization, at this moment in time, the NAACP was considered a radical organization, which had no big funder. So it, it often was hard, um, difficult for the NAACP to object to what the Garland Fund was trying to propose. And so one of the issues becomes, I think, for the NAACP is in the negotiation of this grant about how do they resist and or redirect the Garland Fund to the area of racial violence. And they can't say that directly because they are so afraid of losing funding. They are barely keeping the lights on at the NAACP's headquarters in New York. And they need funding to continue to do the great work that they are doing. And so within these constraints, they are trying to redirect the Garland Fund to a focus on racial violence. And what they can't say is, we don't want this funding. I mean, perhaps they can, right? But they don't want to lose the funding. And so the ways that they try to resist 
is through saying, and not exactly the words like, we don't want this funding. But for example, there is this an exchange with one of the NAACP members, and he says, I have no pride of authorship. I basically just regurgitated what you wanted me to write, writing to a member of the Garland Fund. And there's other mentions, in, especially around W.B. Du Bois, where he is a bit more resistant about and worried about the control of a white-controlled foundation at the time. Mm-hmm. And so for me, in trying to understand this contestation between the Garland Fund and the NAACP, it was important for me to be sensitive to the environment in which kind of the historical time period in which they were writing things down. The constraints under that, like at the end of the day, James Weldon Johnson, W.B. Du Bois knew that they did not hold the purse strings, that well-meaning white individuals had control of the money and they wanted to fund education. And I think under those constraints and in that environment, they felt compelled to focus on the issue of education, even if it wasn't one of their top priorities at the time. Yeah, I mean, what strikes me when you were describing the response of the NAACP to the potential for this really important money that they needed uh, as an organization mm-hmm. um, and how they were reluctant to speak plainly to the funder that perhaps mm-hmm. this is not necessarily right. the direction that they wanted to go. And so many nonprofit leaders can relate to that conundrum <laughs> today. It's so hard to speak plainly to funders. Right. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah. And so I think that we need to acknowledge that. And I think we need to be more aware of how do we let grantees and activists and movements and or individuals that we think are doing important work or groups that are doing important work, how can we let them drive the agenda? In part because I what you said about it's difficult to speak plainly to foundation officials, to grantors. So I think that that part of the issue, though, is, well, how can we rethink that relationship? And then I think part of that is also the evaluation metrics and the impact metrics. What does it mean to support individuals and groups doing work around Black Lives Matter? Because it's unlikely that Black Lives will matter in six months next year. And so how can we rethink metrics of success? Does it mean that we provide technical assistance to, I don't know, let's say 20 activists on the ground? It certainly doesn't mean that law enforcement will stop killing African-Americans. So I do think that, especially when it comes to different movements and groups, we need to be more creative in thinking about what the metrics and evaluation will look like. And we really need to let people who are most impacted by the harm that we want to help fix, we need to make sure that those people are really driving the conversations, driving the agenda and driving the work that is being done. And that inherently means when you're funding social movements, grassroots efforts, Mm -hmm. As funders, we may not know what the outcome is going to be. Oh, yes. (laughs) And and that can be very scary for foundations who want grantees to have their theory of change (laughs) to explain exactly how Black Lives Matter is going to get from A to B. Yeah, The inherent nature of grassroots movements and people-led organizations is that they may not know what six months brings, where they'll be a year down the road. And yes. I think there's a there's a demand 
for funders to fund it anyway. You know what? We don't know where we're going exactly, yes. but yes. we need your support and and trust us to get where we need to go. Right. Exactly. And I, I think what it, in that, what you're calling for something that I think needs to happen, which is the transformation kind of in the structure in which we provide grants to specific groups of individuals. Because I don't think, especially in a lot of these grassroots organizations that we know and they know what it's going to look like in a year. And that's fine. I think it's important not to have that in six months, in one year, that we expect that this and this will be achieved. I don't think that we know. And that I think that the uncertainty is okay if you trust the people that are leading the movement. That especially in terms of the NAACP, in terms of all of their important work around racial justice, they could not have predicted so much of what they achieved as well as what they didn't achieve. And that I also, you know, that of course brings up what some of us have always talked about. We also need a different type of vocabulary around so-called failures or successful failures and thinking about the longer pace and the longer timeline that change actually happens to undo entrenched inequalities, especially racial inequalities in this country, that it's not going to be quick. And what does it mean to actually be in it for the long haul and how to like undo thinking about investment? Oftentimes I feel like (laughs) foundations think that I'm going to invest in this organization and that part of wanting a theory of what this investment will then show at the end of a year is attached to that. They want some return on their investment. And I'm not sure that we have thought through enough about to think more creatively about or outside of the bounds of investing in an organization and getting something back in return. I'm also, and this is kind of not necessarily a last thing, but I'm still thinking through this. I sometimes wonder, and I'm not yet ready to say but I'm some, sometimes wonder if foundations should fund grassroots movements at all, or at least under the structures in which they do right now. Because I think that the course of history, especially in terms of, of civil rights, whether it is around the longer struggle for African-American civil rights in this country, as well as, let's say, another one of my colleagues, a number of my colleagues actually focus on the Chicano civil rights movement, as well as groups around Maldef, La Raza, Etc. But oftentimes, when organize when when foundations get involved, even the most well intentioned, and that's kind of the, what's what's fascinating about the Garland Fund and the NAACP is these were the most progressive white people. <laughs> these were the sons and daughters of abolitionists, right? That if anybody was going to do good, it was going to be these white people that were going to do good, and yet still, right? And yet still. These progressive, liberal-minded individuals that we see the reinscribing of a type of racial domination and of white supremacy into so-called progressive institutions. I think that's one of the, I mean, I would argue one of the sad takeaways of Brown v. Board that I, I think in so many ways it was emancipatory. Of course, desegregating education was, but also one of the drawbacks and consequences of the Brown litigation strategy was that other strategies around racial violence fell to the wayside and that we have a civil rights movement that is along the lines of education and not racial violence that has forever impacted what we feel like as society as well as what the government feels it owes to racially marginalized groups.
what do you think is the problem? Bureaucracy? They have the capability. They have far more people than you. They have more lawyers, and they have outsourced their fundraising, which, of course, ruptures their ability to have grassroots coalition, unlike Lois Gibbs's group, which has grassroots efforts all over the country. What do you think the problem is? Problem is it uh, they're is paid it? too much? Fred Krupp apparently is paid just under $1 million a year as head of the environmental defense group. They're too cushy with companies like McDonald's. Give us your analysis. It's not just the lack of a fighting spirit. What's the cause of the lack of the fighting spirit? I think that the bottom line is that the problem is beyond dispute. It's plain as day. When environmental defense fund, not to pick on Fred too much because he's very, very capable, as we all know, when they started out, they were practically communists. They were suing everyone. They hired people with incredible fighting spirit, and they just were like a house on fire, as you were at the same time. And then the difference is, over the course of the years, they finally began to care about raising more and more and more money. And they couldn't raise money as effectively if they were constantly kicking the crap out of giant corporate polluters. And so that's how come I believe that the environmental pollution cleanup movement dwindled and then the environmental movement became a sustainable energy movement. Then you could promise the moon and the stars, 100% sustainable, and never have to fulfill it. Never have to get your hands dirty, engaged in brutal grassroots political fights. And so that's how come now they're really propaganda machines. They tell their members how they're just working so hard. But the truth of the matter is they have virtually no victories to show for all the money that's been spent. And that's because they don't really care that much about winning and losing. And well, that's also- the difference with New York is that we had our homes, our state, our heritage to defend from shale fracking, and that's what we succeeded in doing. All right, Walter, we're talking to Walter Hang, who is the founder and head of Toxic Targeting in Ithaca, New York. Part of it is, once you want to raise money, you don't just want to raise money in 50 or $25 increments. You want to raise big money. So that means you go to foundations, whose boards are heavily corporate lawyers, corporate consultants, and you start getting members on your own board that are very wealthy. And they have good public sentiments, but they don't really mean it. And what you're talking about is fire in the belly. You really mean it. You're on the ground. So describe how you and others mobilized to get Governor Cuomo of New York to basically put a ban on fracking throughout the entire state of New York. And by the way, listeners, fracking is not just more global warming gases. It's not just a mess that they create. Fracking requires the pumping of water with chemicals to liberate the gas and the shale, as Walter pointed out. And it's beginning to contaminate underground drinking water. And people in Pennsylvania are beginning to get sick from the pollution. It's also, they're beginning to be swindled on the royalty agreements, that one-sided fine print royalty agreements that these farmlands owners had to sign. So start us through. Now, where was NRDC on New York and shale? 
And then what did you and others do? Because our listeners are looking for victories. And this is a great victory. Give it a time frame, too. Well, Natural Resources Defense Council was like all the other entities. They were basically saying they were going to battle this problem. And then they would litigate if, heaven forbid, shale fracking was permitted. And one key philanthropic entity really believed in NRDC and had provided enormous funding. And then one day, John Adams, the executive director of NRDC, said, you're not going to believe the public education efforts that we're making. And suddenly the light bulb went off in this person's head, and she realized that they were not going to fight to the death. And that's when I got a call. probably don't think about your socks all that often, but that's probably because there's not much to think about. Whereas I've been a convert to Bomba's socks for years and still appreciate every pair for their style and comfort when I put them on. Just as you'd expect, they have lots of fancy features like super soft natural cotton, arch support, a seamless toe, a cushioned footbed, plus fun styling and colors to choose from. But the thing I think will put you over the top is their mission, which goes far beyond selling socks. The founders learned that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, so they built Bombas from the ground up to sell great socks to customers and give away great socks to those in need, one for one. To take advantage of our special offer, buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash best today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. Today, an insider speaks out. Merle Beam says big philanthropy, corporate sponsors, and wealthy donors that seemingly support gay rights have actually stymied the movement through the power of their donations. Beam takes aim at the LGBTQ nonprofit sector, which he worked in for years. And it was an experience that would become the basis for his new book. And it really began in large part because of my own experiences working in nonprofits and seeing how difficult it was for people with the very best of intentions to do the kind of work that they wanted to be doing, to have the impact on the world that they wanted to be having. Beam is an assistant professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. His new book is Gay Inc., The Nonprofitization of Queer Politics. Beam writes about how a movement, at one time radically contrarian, intersectional, and anti-authoritarian, took a more conservative turn over the past three decades. Beam says this happened because LGBTQ organizations began to seek out wealthy donors. Beam argues that the movement's embrace of the nonprofit model has had an enormous and troubling impact on a once radical movement. The nonprofit structure has made the LGBT movement more conservative. It has made the LGBT movement more reliant on the priorities of the very wealthiest members of the LGBT community. And those are people, by and large, for whom the system has worked. And their only mode of exclusion is their gay and lesbian identity, meaning the other parts of their life, whether that means their white skin privilege, their inherited wealth, whatever, has given them access to a seat at the table. And they would like to be first-class citizens, let's say. And so they would like 
full legal equality. They would like to be able to marry. They would like to be able to pass their inheritance to their spouse. They would like to be thought of as fully American. And so that desire has come to stand in for the desire of the movement. And that happens because it's their wealth, it's their donations that literally fund the movement. And so organizations are very much beholden to those donors. And that's true when we talk about individuals, but it's also true when we talk about foundations and corporations as well. And so what has this meant for non-wealthy, non-white queer people? So I would say in the 1960s and 70s, there was this sort of full spectrum of queer politics, meaning there were very much assimilationist queers in the 1950s and 60s too, right? As well as the kind of more radical, more grassroots, more intersectional, anti-racist, anti-war wing of the movement. But over the past 50 years, one wing of the movement has been amplified through institutionalization and funding. And that is the more assimilationist wing. The sort of radical queer end, the queer left, and in particular, queer people of color, low-income queers, immigrant queers, and trans people have been sort of left operating on shoestring budgets, really fighting to have mainstream organizations recognize any issues that are not marriage, the military, and hate crimes. So things like police violence, queer youth homelessness, immigration, healthcare. And so concrete example of this is I was working in Minnesota in 2012 when a constitutional amendment was put forward that would have banned same-sex marriage in the Minnesota state constitution. And it was a moment when an enormous amount of activism and energy went into a vote no campaign that ended up being successful. It was one of the first successful campaigns to resist a constitutional amendment to the state constitution. And immediately following that vote no campaign was a push to legalize same-sex marriage that was successful. This marriage fight brought in millions and millions of dollars to the state specifically to fund that issue. And it brought in mainstream national organizations like the HRC, like Freedom to Marry, like the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, and many others. And it also was the primary thing that donors wanted to give money towards. And so it had two immediate impacts. One was that other organizations, longstanding organizations dealing with issues of queer youth homelessness, dealing with young trans people being wrapped up in the criminal legal system, doing legal advocacy for trans people, trying to sort of meet the basic safety and security needs of low-income queer people of color. Those organizations had a very difficult time securing the same level of funding that they had been getting in years previous, because those funders, those major donors, and for an organization like that, a major donor is five or $10,000, right? That money was going towards the marriage campaign. And then also, after the marriage campaign was concluded, those donors felt like they had won what they wanted. They got what they wanted, and they felt like they wanted to move their money towards something else. And then that money never came back after the marriage campaign was over. So that's kind of a concrete example of how the priorities of wealthy donors really have an outsized impact in the day-to-day -day work of the movement. You talk about kind of how queer people are managed and mobilized in the nonprofit space. You write, subjects across the spectrum are invited to understand themselves and orient themselves toward entrepreneurial self-governance. 
in an economic and cultural order in which queerness is not oppositional, but rather responsive, upwardly mobile, and included. Yeah. So there are a couple of pieces there that I want to tease apart. One is a transformation, a political transformation within the LGBT movement that shifts it from a more oppositional, meaning we want to transform, we want to tear down the status quo, to equality-oriented, oriented towards inclusion and assimilation. That's a political transformation that's happened over the last 50 years within the LGBT movement. And so marriage equality would be an example of that. It's very kind of conforming to social norms, bringing in LGBT people into, you know, the common American value set. (laughs) Yeah, it's about including LGBT people within the existing norms around what is healthy and valuable and good. Rather than accepting other alternative forms of being together. Yeah, or saying marriage. Who cares? Let's have households of five kinky people. That's just as maybe even more so fantastic, right? This is about, in many ways, a loss of a radically contrarian imagination for what could constitute queer life. And instead being like, well, let's have our, you know, monogamously coupled people be thought of as just as valuable, just as American as straight monogamously coupled people, while still leaving alone the degree to which people who are not monogamously coupled, who pay for sex, who have lots of kinky sex, who have sex in parks, all the other ways that sex is regulated or thought of as deviant or disgusting, those are left alone. Those haven't been challenged. Instead, some parts of the community have been able to access the norm. You write about how the LGBT movement has struggled with the outsiders within their realm. You talk about drop-in community center for LGBT youth, where as they are trying to grow and kind of corporatize, they begin to become very concerned about some of the youth who aren't behaving in a certain way, who are causing problems out on the street, outside the shelter. Talk to me a little bit about the struggle and how the LGBT movement has dealt with kind of the I don't know, some would say the fringes, or maybe they're the center of the yeah, movement. Yeah, this is a really great question, because it this is exactly where the political transformation in the movement dovetails with nonprofitization in a really insidious way. So as I was sort of trying to explain around marriage, one of the problems with marriage is that whenever you privilege one form of intimacy, you leave alone or even potentially reinforce the idea that other forms of intimacy are deviant or dangerous. So marriage is wonderful. I, in fact, am married. But we have LGBT movements who are increasingly reliant on the wealthiest LGBT people. Oftentimes, those wealthy LGBT people have been able to garner some kind of access, which is, of course, how they were able to accrue their wealth. In order to get that access, you have to conform in a large part. So they tend to be a little bit potentially more conservative in their politics, meaning they also believe in those same sets of norms. So the organization that you're talking about bowed to the pressure of their wealthy donors to narrowly constitute LGBT community and 
consign those who didn't fit in to that community to criminalization primarily, right? Queer people of color on the north side of Chicago who are coming up to Belmont to trade sex in order to have a place to stay. Those people were sort of cast out of the LGBT community center and thought of as criminals, right? And instead of being brought into the space of that community center, the donors were facing enormous pressure from the community, the literal community, the neighborhood that they were positioned in to sort of crack down on homeless young people who were accessing their services. And so you can see a sort of connection between the narrowing of the political horizons of the movement and the pressure placed on organizations or placed on the politics of organizations by the outsized impact of the values of wealthy people. You have a, an amusing chapter on uh, the thinkers, uh, the house thinkers of market world, uh, these uh, thought leaders rather than uh, um, public intellectuals. Uh, what does it take to be a thought leader? Clipping your intellectual wings. You know, one of the things that I concluded with my reporting, and I spent a lot of time in these worlds and really tried to get under the skin of people who are these elites who are trying to change things without having their world change. And one of my conclusions was that these are, in general, good people, decent people, and they're sincere in their efforts to make things better, which makes it all the more surprising that they're so unable to risk themselves and their position and sacrifice to actually make things better. And I became interested in how is it that so many decent people are upholding an indecent system? How is that possible? And the missing link between decent people and an indecent system is bad ideas, limited ideas, ideas of self-justification. And what I realized was a lot of these decent people need someone to tell them that the kind of fake change or change light that they promote is good enough. They need someone to reassure them because they're smart people who, if they really think about it, probably understand that a charter school in their town is not the same as equal public schools for everybody. But they need someone to tell them that it's enough, that it's good enough, that just helping those few is, is plenty. And so that's where you get the kind of court thinkers, who I call thought, thought leaders. Others, Daniel Dresner and others, have, have referred to them in the same terms. And a thought leader is like a public intellectual, except not at all. Public intellectuals were, you know, these thinkers who really challenged power. James Baldwin was, a, you know, an iconic public uh, intellectual. You think of any of the great feminist theorists, um, Simone de Beauvoir and others. I mean, these are real thinkers who wrote for a mix of intellectuals and regular people and who challenged power and our understandings of how the world works. A thought leader is someone who does not do that. Someone who talks about many things, including the great problems of our age, but in ways that clip the wings of the diagnosis, in ways that turn issues of inequality into issues of poverty, that turn issues of you know, what kind of social policy do we need for women into lean in um, that kind of denude the big issues of our time of their political bite and actually try to recast them as being personal dilemmas that people can solve by leaning in or working a little harder in school. Um, and so if they do that, if they are managed to kind of talk about 
the problems of our age in these kind of more winner-friendly ways, they'll find they're invited back, they're put on a lecture circuit, they're paid a lot of money for talks. And so slowly you get um, a large crop of serious thinkers who end up taking the route of thought leadership because it pays the bills and who make that bargain of basically becoming unthreatening uh, to power. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Founded in 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. You talk about a very specific example of this in your discussion of local education foundations. Right. This is a type of private giving at public schools that has grown quite a bit in recent years. First of all, what are local education foundations and and what concerns you about them? Yeah, this is something I first experienced as a parent here in the Bay Area. Local education foundations are either independently organized public charities, 501c3 organizations that are designed for the purpose of raising additional private dollars to supplement the public budget of the local public schools. Sometimes they're organized as sort of offshoots of or adjuncts to parent-teacher organizations, parent-teacher associations. And the thing that I discovered living here in, in the Bay Area was that the local education foundations often had pretty professional people working for them who were seriously engaged in the project of raising money as if it were on behalf of, you know, say, a St- Stanford with a massive development office. And I thought to myself, well, this is certainly understandable from a parent or a sort of civic point of view, the public budgets of the schools in California have long been woefully tended to as underfunded public schooling. And parents think that they're supporting public education by sending their kids to public schools and think that they're supporting public education further than by making charitable donations to these local education foundations. But the underbelly of this that I wanted to write about was, I guess, twofold. First, it seems obvious that wealthy towns, basically wealthy suburbs, can raise significantly more private funding to supplement the school budget than big cities or poor areas can. And I went out and collected some data and showed exactly that. Palo Alto, no surprise, will raise a lot more private contributions to the Palo Alto schools than East Palo Alto will. And the thing that's objectionable about this from a policy standpoint is that The local education foundation is a public charity under the law, and therefore all the contributions to it are tax deductible. 
So we have federal policy here that provides tax advantages for these charitable contributions to your own kids' public schools that subsidizes the worsening of an inequality that one would think the government is responsible for redressing in the first place. And one last thing about this is the idea that parents who make these contributions understandably do think that they're doing something to support public schools. There's a self-interest involved as well in maintaining their property values or increasing the educational advantages of their own children. But they are in the process, because everyone has a limited um, amount of time and a limited budget in which to do anything charitably, they're not addressing the root source of the problem in California, which is the school finance system. And I see almost no local education foundations raising a ruckus about what goes on in Sacramento and the problems of public funding of education. And instead, we have Palo Alto just trying to solve the problem on its own by asking parents in Palo Alto for $2,000 every year per kid as a charitable contribution. And just to give people an idea of the kind of money we're talking about that are raised by these foundations for public schools, you write the amount of private money raised in Woodside, and that's a very wealthy kind of neighborhood in the Bay Area. Right behind Stanford. That's right. Yeah, where the captains of industry live, that's often said. Well, you write that the amount of private money raised in Woodside exceeds on a per pupil basis the amount of public money received per pupil in some low-income schools in California. Yeah, that's right. Woodside uh, has a a single K-8 school. It's a public school district with one school in the district. And with the many, many wealthy people who live in the area who make extraordinary contributions to the Woodside School Foundation, on a per-pupil basis, Woodside has more private dollars per kid than they do public dollars for kids in other places in the state. And remember, this isn't just then opening up a big funding inequality between the Woodside School and, say, East Palo Alto. It is coming at the expense of all taxpayers in the United States because these are all tax-advantaged donations to the Woodside School Foundation. You break down the 15 largest local education foundations in the Bay Area, ranked by net assets in the year 2000. So this is data that's actually quite old. That's right. So we can only imagine, uh, given the incredible wealth that's accumulated in the hands of so many, especially in the Bay Area since 2000, we're looking at Woodside School Foundation, number one, uh, net assets of $11 million, a little bit more than that, with net assets per pupil of $24,690. Right. Yes. It's basically a privatized public school. Why is this okay? On what basis can America's wealthiest residents put forward their money into a public school system that's supposed to be educating everyone, particularly in light of the fact that so many schools in this country are struggling for basic school supplies, for proper, you know, lighting and all kinds of things. On what basis is this thought to be a good thing? Yeah, well, um, let's inhabit for a moment, I think, the point of view of a parent who lives in Woodside. So they're going to say something like the following, that they're wealthy enough to send their kids to a private school, but they want, in fact, to support the public schools in Woodside, and they send their kid to a public school rather than a private school. And they're 
unhappy about the school finance system in California that that under delivers in the amount of money per pupil that they think would be appropriate to spend. And so um, arises then amongst people who are extremely good at organizing. This is a high capacity, highly educated town. They organize a local education foundation to try to supplement the public school dollars. In so doing, of course, bolstering their property values and advantaging their own children. But the story they're going to tell is that they're supporting a public entity rather than actually withdrawing from the public school system altogether. And they have a point to make about that. There's an understandable motivation there that would be familiar to almost anyone listening. But the kind of thing that you have in mind in asking the question, like, how could this possibly be a good thing? How did we arrive at this moment? It has to do with the peculiar set of laws that we have in the United States that allow so many different things to count as public charities. Um, I describe it in the book as we have a kind of anything goes attitude about 501c3 public charities. The IRS approves over 99% of the fully completed applications for public charity 501c3 status every year. We have the most kaleidoscopic definition of the public charity sector of any other country. And so a donation made to the Woodside School Foundation from the standpoint of the law, the tax advantages that attach to a charitable donation, is just as valuable as a donation to a soup kitchen, to an art museum, to Stanford University, to a hospital. The law treats all public charities exactly the same and gives them the same tax advantages as anyone else. So as a result, we have charity here that instead of helping the disadvantaged is exactly the opposite. Giving to the local education foundation in Woodside is wealthy people making a charitable donation to further advantage wealthy people. And that seems to me perverse. I guess I'm curious about what you would have those wealthy parents in Woodside do instead, because I think many of us, you know, want to advocate for our own kids, no matter our income level. And we want to give them the best schools possible. And what should those parents be doing instead? Sure. I give two responses to that. The first is that the aim of the book is less to give advice to individuals about what they should be doing with their money and more to try to examine the public policies we have that allow these different behaviors, the giving wealthy people giving to their own kids' public schools, to count as just as worthy a form of charity as giving to a soup kitchen, say. So I want to emphasize that I'm not generally in the business of giving moral advice to individuals. Having said that, with respect to the parents in Woodside or in Palo Alto or in Scarsdale or wherever it turns out to be, I'd point out that the kind of thing I hear people say in Woodside, which is something like the following, well, if only the state could get its act together and get a school finance system that allowed children to have a decent per pupil you know, educational opportunity, then we wouldn't have to raise all this money. And I want to say then to people, that sounds like the first best thing to do. In other words, get involved politically, direct your considerable attention and money to the task of uh, reforming the school finance system, which will have the benefit of advantaging all of California's school children, not just those in Woodside. 
Um, the philanthropic giving should be a small thing on the side, you know, say on the order of spaghetti dinners or car washes to support whatever extracurricular activity there is at the school. That seems to me a time-honored way of civil society and parents and people coming together to support the school, but not professional fundraising organizations, which are meant to bypass the root source of the problem, which is the politics of school finance. I'm curious if you could share, since many nonprofits are reliant on institutional foundations, what does Justice Funders have as a vision for philanthropic transformation and how that can transform social justice movements? Where are you seeing the move from not just being exclusively reliant on grant capital? I think it's important to name that historically when Congress created institutional philanthropy by essentially approving a tax shelter for wealth, it in turn also created the nonprofit industrial complex, right? So when we look at the last hundred years and the way that both institutional philanthropy has evolved over time and the dependence of some of the most radical work in our country being consolidated in a C3 structure in order to get the resources to do the work. We're seeing the ways in which, at this point, capital is constraining systems change. And so I think the important thing for us to now have simultaneous conversations with our movements as we are in philanthropy is to really think about how do we reimagine the kind of ecosystem support for local work that is actually generated from our neighbors rather than from institutional philanthropy. And so one of the projects that um, Justice Funders is now leading is an action lab called Movement Commons, where we are actively um, pursuing some, some experiments, really, actually on two different levels. So the first is um, an experiment on what would it look like for institutional philanthropy to take the strategy of folks on the ground? So I think we often hear some of the worst case examples of where a group of funders will get together. They'll say, oh, we have this great idea for how we can do X, Y, or Z. They put a pot of money together. And then we hear horror stories from our frontline groups who are either forced to collaborate in order to get a little bit of money or to do work that's really outside the bounds of what they were planning on doing in order to be resourced. And so... As a response to the growing gentrification in the Bay Area and seeing very siloed responses, some of our local leaders called on us to say, hey, are your funders paying attention to what's happening here? And great that now we have some strategies around affordable housing or great now that we have some strategies on you know, broader transportation. But this is actually a power building question. And we were like, oh, how are you seeing this? You know, and we were informed, well, look at, you know, sort of the history of the Bay Area and California politics. The reason why California has been such a progressive stronghold is that we have developed a very mature 
constellation of movement organizations who are able to activate year round and not just when elections happen, but are also able to provide constant political education, leadership development to local leaders and get community members out to the polls during election season. Well, guess who's getting pushed out of our urban cores, right? These are the folks that are the organized folks who provide the most um, progressive votes on all of our issues statewide. And once these folks are pushed out of the urban core into outer areas where they can afford to live, what does this mean for our organized base in the Bay Area? So one of the things that we started to experiment with was, well, hey, how how could we provide a container for both lifting up your strategy, which is that we need a regional response, as well as calling in the relationships that we had in philanthropy to be able to help create a community-led collaborative for broader power building. And so Bay Rising is a local example of one of those collaboratives. Lift Up Contra Costa is an example of that where um, it was really a coalition of community groups who came up with what the strategy is and we helped to align the philanthropic resources to support that strategy. So now this is four years in the making and we've been really pleased to be able to demonstrate that it's possible for philanthropy to follow movements and achieve great success. In Contra Costa, we now have the first African-American DA, and that is a super powerful example of where good organizing gets us better results for our communities. In terms of looking at what we need to do to also support our movements, the other project that Movement Commons is really surfacing right now is what if we began to think about building the level of political education and activation at the individual donor level that we do for our base members. So how can we get all of our local supporters to not only be active in supporting our work, but supporting the work of our allies? And so what would it look like for us to actually build ecosystems of donors who are involved in supporting multiple organizations or an alliance and a base group because they saw the direct connection between what it takes to build power for their community So if we instead focus on building the individual and community capacity to support our movement work, it then relies less on institutional philanthropy. And so I think we see that as sort of a paired strategy for what needs to happen in order for us to actually achieve the just transition. This is something that I, I have brought up many times, and I, I know I'm not the only one, and it's not a, a novel critique. But the way that progressive philanthropists have been operating has not been very effective. And I, I know this is a blanket statement. I know there's some really great foundations out there that are doing amazing work. But I'm talking about philanthropy, progressive philanthropy as a whole, has not been keeping up with what conservative philanthropy has been doing. Talk to me more about that. Yeah, I mean, there's been a report probably 20 years ago by Sally Covington that was talking about the differences between conservative and progressive funders. And conservative funders tend to trust their grantees more. They fund not one or two years, but they fund like two or three decades at a time. 
and they don't care what it is that grantees do because you have a partnership you trust the people to do their work and focus on the outcomes and and the big vision at hand and they're also more willing to step into uh, policy and advocacy and politics in the meanwhile progressive funders will spend months intellectualizing like entire year to make a grant decision they fund like 5% of what's needed to actually make change happen they fund one year at a time and then there's all this restricted funding restricted funding is basically an indication that you don't trust nonprofits to do their work and then even two or three year grants i mean it's it's a miracle sometimes that we get a three or a five year grant but what we need to do this work well is like grants that are in the 10 and 20 years with enough trust and flexibility for us to respond to the changes that are out there. Also, another thing that progressive funders do is they focus on one issue at a time. It's like, oh, we're going to focus on just early learning. And then early learning advocates might be, well, you know, we also need to work with parents and housing and all this stuff. And progressive funders are like, no, sorry, that doesn't really align with us. Whereas conservative funders are like, okay, well, we're going to try to get more conservative judges on the Supreme Court. And we're going to do whatever it takes. And that means that we're going to spend more money on college campuses um, to get the message, conservative messages out there to college students. We're going to try to get more local and federal judges elected into office, etc. And meanwhile, we're just like, no, we're going to spend several months putting up sticky dots and reading white papers and intellectualizing and having summits about things and, and then not trust our grantees and maybe analyze whether our money is being spent on the rent or whether they're using it to buy pencils or stuff that we hate. <laughs> and then we wonder why we're not advancing these challenges. We are navigating systems created by conservative funders and organizations. We're reactive. And I don't think it's working. And for those listeners who don't actually work in and operate in the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors. You're talking about restricted funding, and I think a nice, easy way for other people to understand what that might look like. Um, you described it this way. You said, no one goes to a bakery and says, I want to buy a cake, but I don't want any of this $20 I'm giving you to pay for the vanilla or the electricity for the oven or for your chef's salary. So, you know, that's what restricted funding that you're describing can mean for a nonprofit, that they can only spend it on certain things and not on whatever they feel they need to spend it on for the organization to thrive. Right. This is what we deal with. And I've, I've been moving to a new metaphor, which is like we are in many ways like firefighters trying to put out all these fires of injustice. We nonprofits are. And every three or four steps trying to rush to a fire a foundation or a donor stops us and says, hey, I want to make sure the money that I'm giving you to put out these fires is being used to buy the water, but not the hose. <laughs> what is your water to hose ratio? And a bunch of us are like, oh, no, 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 100% of the money is being spent on the water. Don't worry, someone else, we found another donor who's paying for the hose, so you don't have to worry about that. And then the person's like, oh, okay, fine. But also make sure none of this money is going to pay for your firefighting suit either, because we don't pay for that or for the rent at your fire station. Like this this is what we deal with. And what happens is that we are prevented from doing our job again, which means that fires are raging out there and they're spreading. So restricted funding is not just an annoying thing. It is spreading the fires of injustice. And I think we need to be on message about that. When you describe it that way, it shows how 
ridiculous it really is. The final thing I want to ask you about sustainability, it's kind of a buzzword that many in the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors are accustomed to, that if we're going to give you this grant, we want to know when the grant ends, how are you going to be sustainable? What are your plans for kind of weaning your organization off of our foundation grant and getting on the road to sustainability? What are your thoughts about that idea? I think sustainability is not a thing. And we need to stop chasing it. It's actually really detrimental to the work that we're trying to do. And it is indicative of the lack of trust and also probably the lack of awareness of how nonprofits work. Nonprofits are in existence because of the failure of government and, and the market system to address many of these challenges. So we're basically cleaning up the messes that others should be taken care of through taxes and other things. But no. It's like someone else made a mess and then we are like, okay, I'm going to go and help clean it up. And then someone is like, okay, well, how, how are you going to pay for this mop? <laughs> right? I'll help you buy this mop this one time, but like, what about other messes in the future? How are you going to keep paying for mops and cleaning supplies? Okay. Cause I'm not going to help you clean this mess. And we're like, we're not the ones who made the mess. Okay. So it's weird for foundations to be like, how are you going to, how are you going to sustain this when I'm gone? Well, we're just going to beg other people for money. Like that's how, that's the entire model that we have. We're going to ask you for money. Once you stop giving us money, we'll ask other people for money. And it's going to be a game of funding hot potato, which is not as fun as it sounds. It's just irritating. And it wastes time that we should be using trying to help people. So no, this, this whole philosophy around sustainability is not just annoying it is preventing us from doing our work. And just like restrictive funding, I, I think it's starting to become unethical that you're preventing us from doing life-saving work. But foundations don't want you dependent on them five years from now. They just <laughs> don't want that. Yeah. Well, that's the entire, that philosophy is so ridiculous, though. It's, it's kind of like we're, I don't know, living in our parents' basement. They're like, well, you need to get out of the basement. And that's how we have been treated in the sector instead of as professionals who are doing this work and that work that needs to be funded. If we put it onto other professions, we'll, we can see how ridiculous it is. Like, no, we don't go to a public school teacher and say, hey, I love this program that, you, that you're running. What do you call it? The fourth grade? Well, that's really great, but how are you going to sustain the fourth grade when this $10,000 I'm giving your school runs out? No, we should have taxes paying for our public schools and so that teachers can do their jobs. But for the nonprofit sector, it's not. It's like, oh, well, you need to clean up other people's messes and you also need to sustain the work because you're basically parasites and freeloaders off of us. And our whole argument is we're not parasites and freeloaders. We are trying to solve some of the most complex and trench issues that are out there. Trust us to do our job and do your job by bringing funding so we can do our jobs. We've just heard clips today, starting with Tiny Spark discussing the historic example of the NAACP having their focus rerouted to suit the desires of their white funders. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour explained why the big green groups are too beholden to big money and the moderate instincts of their funders to create the environmental change we need to see. 
Tiny Spark also explained how the funders of the LGBTQ movement, largely more moderate than the group as a whole, redirected the radical instincts of the movement into campaigns of conformity like marriage equality and military service. Jacobin Radio explained how decent people can uphold these indecent systems and policies. Once again, we heard Tiny Spark, this time focusing on underfunded public schools that fundraise private money as a supplement and how that suppresses the movement to properly fund schools the right way. Next Economy Now laid out a few ideas for how to rethink philanthropy from the ground up. And finally, it won't be a surprise to hear that we just heard one last clip from Tiny Spark explaining several of the ways that the backwards thinking of progressive funders make it nearly impossible for the nonprofit groups to accomplish their goals. Now, it pretty much goes without saying that if you're in the nonprofit or funding worlds or just want to learn more about it, Tiny Spark is a must listen. They were a huge resource for today's topic. Now, members this week are going to be hearing some fantastic additional material. It absolutely broke my heart that I didn't have time for all of it in the main show. There's just too much interesting stuff on today's topic. Uh, The bonus episode will dive deeper into how the marriage and military equality goals of the LGBTQ movement ended up limiting the options for some people and actually narrowed the perceived scope of possible life options for many. We'll hear more about how the funders of the NAACP redirected their focus to education and away from anti-black violence and lynchings, an issue we are absolutely still seeing echoes of today. And you may have heard of Male fragility, for instance, men who do not understand structural forces and patriarchy, who inevitably take discussions about systemic sexism personally and derail conversations to shout, but not all men. And then there's white fragility. That one's a doozy, exemplified by white people who don't understand structural forces and white supremacy, who take every discussion about racism as a personal attack often breaking down into tears at the perceived accusations that were usually not even actually cast at them. But have you heard of funder fragility? I'm guessing not, but I think you may see where this is going. That is also going to be in the bonus show. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. Undoubtedly, over the next few months, possibly six months, much of your coverage will go towards the primary season of the Democratic Party. I would also hope that you produce a episode uh, centered on Bernie Sanders' wonderful speech on democratic socialism a speech i believe will be a quote game changer that is a very popular statement to make in the political arena but i believe socially his speech will change the minds of many a person who were ultimately against it that said I wanted to offer to your listeners some books that I purchased years ago, but I believe are more relevant now than they have been ever. 
one of which I believe I've already recommended to your listeners, but it would be important that uh, your listeners uh, recommit themselves to reading it, to understanding what its premise is and how important its premise is for the future. The other two are by the same are by uh, not the same author as the first, but they are by the same author, and um, I have not recommended them before. The first book is titled The Second Bill of Rights, FDR's Unfinished Revolution, and Why We Need It More Than Ever. That is by Cass R. Sunstein. Cass, C-A-S-S, R. Sunstein, S-U-N-S-T-E-I-N. I have had this book for almost 10 years, and it is a amazing read. It's a short read, but it is still a wonderful read. And the f- final two books by the same author, I'll give the author's name first, a man by the name of Seymour Melman. S-E-Y-M-O-U-R Melman M-E-L-M-A-N The first book is called this one is slightly older it may be a little bit more difficult to find. It is called Our Depleted Society Our Depleted Society and it is about the military industrial complex and its impact on our society. It is an important book because he attempts to quantify that impact. So that is a very interesting book by itself. But the second one, I believe, is more apt than that. Mr. Melman passed away some years ago, but I think if he wore here, He would find what is happening with the discussions on democratic socialism, the need to cut the military budget significantly in order to move the society forward, to heal the problems that are coming to the surface. I think he would find it very fitting that he wrote this book, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1990s. The book is called After Capitalism. After capitalism, from managerialism to workplace democracy. Again, the book is After Capitalism. I will also encourage your listeners to go and listen to two Google Talks. The first one is by a person I have encouraged them to listen to many times before, and the second one is by somebody who you have included many times on previous episodes. The first Google Talk is by Noam Chomsky. Unlike his speeches, there is a strange, the only way that I can describe it, inviting simplicity to the talk which he gave, which was really an interview, and a personalness that is often lacking 
in some of his his broader lectures. It is a very interesting listen. And then the second Google talk is by one Richard Wolf. This was given a couple of years ago, and it is still vitally important. The information he gave, if I remember correctly, his is longer than Noam Chomsky's. It's about one hour and 30 minutes. And um, it is similarly on the same level as Bernie Sanders' talk on democratic socialism. As always, keep up the great work. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to wrap up today, I have a few thoughts that I think are related They're going to sound not entirely related, but I think there's a thread that goes through them all. So first of all, uh, pulling directly from the show, uh, just a very brief story about when I first heard about the existence of people within the LGBTQ movement who were against marriage equality. It, It was years ago, and I just never heard anything like that. It sounded like the strangest, most alien concept in the world to me, because I thought, isn't that basically the whole thing? Like, why would anyone in that group be against marriage equality? Uh, and and I think, um, you know, military service came up in the same conversation. And it was explained to me very patiently by someone within the community. Uh, well, you have to understand that not everyone is really into that. That's not what we want. That's not our goal. We don't want to be like gay, but otherwise exactly like everyone else. And so first of all, that's not our goal necessarily. And second of all, it can come at the expense of something else. So if the entire movement is focused in one direction, well, there are other issues the community may be dealing with that, that many people would like to focus on, but those other issues can't get oxygen because marriage equality and, and military service access is is like the thing that everyone is rallying around. And so now to have heard you know, the, the research that went into this show, it helps piece all of that together, how that frame got created that made me think all those years ago that it would be you know, completely irrational to be against marriage equality as a member of the LGBTQ community. And so now, of course, I understand, oh, right, my frame was created for me by someone who had a very different perspective than other people in that community. So that's one piece. And I think this sort of relates in a way to to something very different. But, uh, you, you know, we talk about how, you know, first Walmart and then Amazon became dominant in our retail marketplace. And that happened largely because people saw the benefits first 
and they didn't see the costs. They didn't understand what downsides there could be to shopping at Walmart or Amazon, getting things at a deep discount, they're saving money. Oh no, I didn't realize we were going to decimate the small businesses on Main Street. Oh no, I didn't realize we were going to create a giant monopoly that's trying to integrate itself into every facet of our lives. So we see the benefits first, we see the downsides second. And so that that's sort of sort of related to the marriage equality. It's the, it's the not understanding the trade-offs concept. So fo- follow the thread. Now, even after people then see the downsides, the debate shifts in a way that is often not helpful. And this is where we get into the the framing of seeing ourselves as consumers versus citizens, something we've talked about before. And when it comes to, again, following the thread and and wrapping back around to uh, today's topic, school funding, which I think I I see as being very similar to choosing whether or not to shop at a place like Amazon, knowing the downsides, that on one hand, we have this giant system that's in place. It's already in place. We can't stop that. And then we have the choice. Do we engage in the system as it is? Do we shop at Amazon? Do we send our kids to public school, but do a bunch of fundraising to privilege the kids in that particular school at the expense of the the larger problem, which is inadequate public funding through taxation? So people, when they see themselves as consumers, they feel that they have no power. And what, what this reminds me of is the prisoner's dilemma. It's a classic game theory problem. So just to refresh for anyone who's not familiar with the prisoner's dilemma, there are these two criminals who have been brought in. They're, they're in their separate interrogation rooms. The police are talking to both of them. And, and they have each of these people on a, a relatively low charge. They can already put each of them away for a year. But they're trying to get them to talk about a larger crime that happened. And so they're trying to get each prisoner to testify against the other. And the deal that's presented is if you are willing to testify against your buddy, the buddy will go to jail for three years, but you will be set free for having testified. And both of the prisoners are given this option. So the options laid out before them are if they were to betray each other, both end up serving two years. If one betrays the other, but the other remains silent, then the first will be set free for testifying, and the second, who remains silent, will serve three years, and of course vice versa. Whereas if they both remain silent, both of them will only serve one year in prison due to that lesser charge. So they they would both be better off and, and completely avoid the possibility of a longer sentence if they both remain silent. But the dilemma is they have the opportunity to be selfish, the potential to be set free at the expense of someone else, which obviously creates the scenario in which people who, you know, maybe uh, if, if given all of the options and all of the information and could confer with each other would make the most rational choice that's best for everyone, but being separated 
unable to confer with each other, it's very often the case that people end up making the what they see to be the selfish choice in the hopes that they will be set free only to be put in jail longer than they would have otherwise been had they cooperated. So shopping at Amazon, public school funding, th- these things remind me of the prisoner's dilemma because we're faced with a scenario in which we can do what is expedient and selfish to benefit ourselves, knowing that it may be bad for general society. Because, hey, you know, my kids can get an advantage right now. It's not my responsibility to deal with all the other kids. I wish the funding was better, but it's not. So I'm going to do the expedient thing and help my kids now. I'm going to shop at Amazon because, look, like, they're already there, whether I boycott or not is not going to make or break them. So what, I'm going to go shop somewhere else and pay more? When, systemically speaking, Main Street has already been decimated. And so me making a different choice isn't going to necessarily help anything. So the downfall of, of uh, you know retail markets outside of Amazon may happen anyway, and I will have paid more along the way. And so the the selfish and expedient thing is, well, I guess I'll just take the discount and hope that things don't completely go to hell. And I think that when we think of ourselves as consumers, this is what happens. We think that, you know, the only power we have is maybe to boycott, but really not much beyond that. And so to be in these sorts of situations feels like the prisoner's dilemma. What I think we need to realize is that we're not actually in prison. (laughs) We feel like we are. We feel like the system that we're existing within has, has so many constraints on our ability to change it that we feel like, well, there's nothing we can do. But as in the prisoner's dilemma, when the people are actually able to confer with each other, they are able to make better decisions. And that is actually the situation we are in. We are actually in a situation where we can confer, organize, and demand through the the democratic process that we fix the problems that we have rather than doing what's expedient and selfish for ourselves at the expense of the larger system. I know that this is more or less echoing something that was said in the show, but I I found it helpful to uh, see it in this analogy form and also relate it to other scenarios in in society that we've talked about in in ways that seem completely disconnected, but that I think are, uh, are largely the same forces at work in all of these cases. So if you have thoughts on this or anything else, Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, 
all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.